Welcome to the HTH Church Podcast. We are a church in the heart of Hastings whose desire is to build communities of people who are so passionate about being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and joining in with what Jesus is doing, that lives, families, and communities are changed and transformed one at a time. On this podcast, you can keep up to date with the latest talks from our Sunday services, as well as additional bonus episodes, which include conversations, interviews, devotions, and much more. If you'd like to find out more about the church, you can visit our website, hthchurch.org. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy this episode. So um, I thought I'd begin. Let's just um, begin by recapping the story so far from the beginning. So uh, Genesis 25, I think it is, we're introduced to Jacob and Esau, who are born to Rebekah and her husband Isaac, the second son of Abraham. And Isaac, we're told, loved Esau because of Esau's uh, hairiness, his manliness, that he was this uh, big, strong, strapping man who went out hunting and would come and provide um, meat for Isaac to eat. So Isaac loved Esau because of what Esau could offer him. Whereas Rebekah loved Jacob, not because of anything Jacob did per se, but because of God's promise to her about Jacob. And later on, the brothers grow up, and Jacob coerces his older brother Esau, who has been out hunting for days and is on the brink of death uh, from starvation. Jacob coerces his older brother into selling him his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Now, I recorded a little podcast um, that you can catch up with on our Spotify channel uh, with a Bible scholar called Mark Scalata, and he pointed out something really interesting about that little account with the bowl of lentil stew and the selling of the birthright. We might think that Jacob is a real trickster, and he is, that's his name. He's a deceiver in that account. We might think, oh, awful of you to do that, Jacob. But in that context and in that world, the really awful thing to do was to sell your birthright. No matter what, you just wouldn't do it. So actually Esau is to be held some blame there. Jacob's mother, further down the line, Rebecca, then devises a scheme to deceive her blind and ailing husband, Isaac, into giving Jacob, the younger son, the blessing and inheritance that was due the older son, Esau. Because as the younger son, Jacob was not entitled to them. He would not get a penny. And Rebecca loves Jacob. So she deceives Isaac. And Jacob, uh, she, she puts these goat skins on Jacob, and Jacob goes into his blind father and pretends to be his brother Esau and steals the inheritance and the blessing. And Isaac and Esau soon learn of Jacob's deception. And at the behest of his mother, Rebecca, Jacob does a runner. He runs. She tells him to run to the land of Haran, where her, where her brother Laban lives, Jacob's uncle. It's helpful. You can see why it's helpful maybe to have the family tree up, because I get confused with all the names as well. Uh, where his uncle Laban lives in Haran. And on the journey, Jacob is exhausted from running, so he stops and he puts a stone down, and he lays his head on the stone, and he goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping and dreaming, he receives a vision from God of a stairway coming down from heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. This incredible vision. And just a little spoiler alert, that stairway is Jesus. And God says to Jacob, I will be with you wherever you go. Wherever you go, I'll be with you. I will not leave you alone. So, 
Jacob finally arrives in the land of Haran, where his uncle Laban lives. And there he meets Rachel, who's this smoking hot babe. And Rachel also happens to be his cousin. He decides, I'm going I'm to marry her. I'm going to marry her. And he goes to Laban, his uncle, and says, Laban, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. And he says, and I will work for seven years for you in order to marry her. But the deceiver, Jacob, soon becomes the deceived. And on the wedding night, in a somewhat um, funny turn of events, uh, Jacob is tricked by Laban into marrying Laban's older daughter, Leah. And he wakes up in the morning and goes, hang on a minute, you're not Rachel, you're Leah. I've married the older sister. And Laban in full kind of profiteering mode then, he's trying to get the most he can out. Jacob says, well, you can still marry Rachel in a couple of weeks' time, but you'll have to work for me for another seven years. Rebecca said to Jacob when he was running away, go and run to your uncle Laban and Haran and spend a few days there. He ends up spending 20 years in this land working for his uncle. And then the women in this story are not safe from sibling rivalry either. We have sisterly as well as brotherly strife in Genesis. And what we see is that Leah resents Rachel because Jacob so adores Rachel. And Rachel resents Leah because Leah gives to Jacob multiple sons. They're very productive when she herself could not initially conceive. And at this point in the story around this chapter, Jacob takes a bit of a backseat. He's really just a submissive stud in a story about two sisters trying to one-up each other. And eventually, Leah, Rachel, and their two respective uh, maidservants, Zilpah and Bilhah, Um, Jacob is not only very busy in the field working for Laban, he's very busy in the bedroom as well. And he fathers 12 sons and a daughter. And by even more deceit and trickery and much to the contempt of Laban's own sons, Jacob prospers in the land of Haran whilst working for his father Laban. He accrues many, many more sheep and a family and all these things. And God tells Jacob, like his grandfather Abraham before him, to leave where he is and go to the land of Canaan. And fearing even more trickery from Laban, Jacob and his wives conspire to leave under the cover of darkness, which leads us to our passage today. It never gets any easier coming up here. I always get quite nervous. And the moment I step on stage, it's like all the moisture in my mouth has been sucked out. So this is one really dysfunctional family. I think we can all agree on that. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. I'm sorry if it does. This is one really dysfunctional family. It reads a bit more like uh, an episode of EastEnders, like a soap opera more than anything else. And it begs the question, why does God bother? Why does God bother with this bunch of squabbling tricksters and deceivers? Surely there are better people that God could have chosen to execute his plan and his purpose than this lot. They're useless. And in fact, they're worse than just deceivers and tricksters. They are idolaters. Can anyone tell me the first of the Ten Commandments? They should have no other gods before me. Can anyone tell me the second of the Ten Commandments? John's very nervous. He comes. You shall not make any idols. These are two things that God really cares about. So Jacob and his disgruntled wives hatch a plan to abandon wicked Laban 
And we get this little verse that is pretty inconspicuous, where it says that while Laban is out tending to his flock, Rachel, the younger sister, the youngest daughter, sneaks into his tent and pockets Laban's teraphim. Teraphim are the household gods or idols. Now, this isn't the only place where teraphim show up in the Bible. They crop up um, in quite a few places, and there's a lot of conjecture about what they were exactly. In one account, in 1 Samuel, we have another dysfunctional family with another angry father-in-law. King Saul is out to get David, and David's wife, Michal, helps David escape by putting a teraphim into a bed and putting a goat hair wig on it. Now, the goat hair should sound familiar there because that's exactly what Rebecca did to deceive Isaac. She puts a goat hair wig on a teraphim and tricks Saul's men into thinking that David was lying in bed when, in fact, he's actually gone. And I imagine that's the first instance of, like, a kid stuffing their bed with pillows so they can sneak out the window and kiss their girlfriend or something. That's teraphim. The prophets Hosea and Ezekiel mentioned teraphim in terms of divination, trying to work out the future. In King Josiah's reforms, they are outlawed. And in Zechariah, it's said that they utter nonsense. They lie. They give false dreams and empty consolations. One account of teraphim says that it was a mummified head It's a bit creepy, with a gold plate on the tongue that people would hang on their wall and it would talk to them and tell them things. The teraphim speak, they lie. Empty dreams, empty consolations. So why, given what God's promise to Jacob as well in Jacob's dream that I will always be with you on every journey, why does Rachel pocket these gods? Why does she steal them? Again, there's a lot of conjecture. Is it because the teraphim were used for divination, trying to work out what will happen in the future? Does she take her father's gods to prevent her father from trying to magically ascertain her whereabouts and Jacob's whereabouts? Or does she take them so that she can somehow work out what's going to happen in the future and either avoid the bad stuff and go towards the good stuff? Maybe it's both of those things. Or were the teraphim a symbol of one's standing within the family? They were like the the inheritance that you could claim, these precious, precious idols in the household. So is Rachel taking them to stake her claim on the inheritance that her father has squandered? After all, there's one little line in this chapter that says that the one thing that Leah and Rachel agree on is that their father no longer has any regard for them. Is she taking her inheritance? Or is it because in keeping with ancient Mesopotamian custom, these teraphim would also be taken on long journeys to ensure one's safe passage? I think that's what's likely here. The teraphim allowed you to purchase a degree of safety, security, peace, serenity, predictability, luck, empowerment, hope, convenience, even a sense of liberation or forgiveness, or relief from guilt. Whichever of these things it is, and it's probably a combination of all of them, it's not by mistake that Rachel takes Laban's idols. Her theft is deliberate. Idolatry is not an accident. It's not as though some of us can somehow mistakenly land on the wrong candidate for God and just go, whoops, Sorry, 
Idolatry is never an accident. It's always a choice. And it's not always an insidious choice made with bad motives. Sometimes it's a choice made in the pursuit of a, of a good outcome. Like if I told you that the God in your pocket, if there was a God here and you could pocket it, and if you took that God, you could ensure the end of violence in Gaza and in Ukraine, are you telling me you wouldn't take it? It's always a choice. It begs the question of us. Who are the gods in your pocket? Now, we might not have household idols in the same way as they did back then, but I'm pretty sure all of us, you know, pretty sure all of us has one of these. That comes with a degree of power. Use it or abuse it. I'm sure all of us has you know, a bunch of keys, car key on there, house keys on there, all your possessions. Is that the God in your pocket? Or is it this? Money, the big one. We can either always never have too much. There's never enough. Is that the God in your pocket? Now, it's easy just to think of all these classic Western vices, money, sex, and power, when we think about idolatry. And we might think about those things for good reason. After all, Jesus talked a lot about each of those things. We didn't really talk about sex directly per se, but he did talk a lot about marriage. And where he relaxed a lot of the other sacrificial and ritual food laws in the Torah, he really tightens up the bounds on marriage and says, no, this thing is really special. He had some pretty harsh words to say about abuses of power, as did all of the Old Testament, all the Hebrew prophets, as does Paul. In one spectacular account, Jesus is asked about whether or not the Jewish people in an act of civil disobedience should defy their Roman overlords by not paying taxes to Caesar. Should we pay taxes to Caesar, they ask him. Because money and power often go hand in hand. And he asks for a coin before replying to his questioners, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. After all, it's got his face on it and his name on it. And to God, what is God's? Now, the latter of those two statements effectively cancels out the first. Whichever way you look at it, Jesus is saying, your money and your possessions are not your own. In fact, they're not even Caesar's. Everything belongs to God. But it's also really easy to overlook a crucial detail in that story. That Jesus has to ask for a coin. He doesn't have one in his pocket. Who are the gods in your pocket? Now, idolatry is a symptom of sin. Sin is not just something we do, and I feel like I'm always reiterating this because I think it's really important to understand it. Sin is not just something we do. It's not just our individual actions. Sin is a cosmic power that lies outside of us, that bends us in upon ourselves, blinding us to God and one another and binding us to death. Sin, unlike idolatry, is not a choice. It's something that happens to us that we are unable to control. And the theologian Willie James Jennings, when he was talking about idolatry, put it like this. Idols come into existence in the space created by our turning away from one another as men and women, as well as our turning away from God. Idols live between us, facilitating distorted desire 
and distorting relationship. I think he hits on something really key here, that idolatry causes a rift, not just between me and God, but between me and everyone else. It's much bigger and much more inconspicuous than just money, sex, and power. Idolatry often comes in very familiar disguises as well. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth said that idolatry happens whenever we attempt to use the divine for our own ends. Idolatry happens when, in God's name, we bless and baptize our own bias and prejudice. Idolatry happens when we stamp the so-called divine seal of absolute approval on our politics, on our denomination, on our theology. Idolatry happens whenever we use God to sanction our social standing, our culture, our power as somehow superior over others. Idolatry happens when we confuse God's will and desire with our own. Bart wrote again, one cannot speak of God simply by speaking of humanity in a loud voice. Idolatry happens when we attempt to get out of God anything, even a good thing, other than God himself. Who are the gods in your pocket? And Karl Barth was writing these words in 1934 at a time when the German church, and he was living in Germany, the German church under National Socialism claimed God's approval of Nazi racism and hatred of the Jews. Barth rightly accused the theologians of his day of replacing the true God with an idol they had created in their minds. Even our holy scriptures, our Bible, are not free from becoming idols to us. The Ku Klux Klan in America, most of them, many of them, are committed, faithful, Bible-believing Christians. And yet they use the Bible to justify their racist beliefs. Slave traders, again, many of them, Bible-believing Christians use the word of God to ratify their actions. The Bible never denies the power of idols to bestow benefits on those who worship them. The Bible never denies the power of idols to bestow benefits on those who worship them. All throughout Scripture, God's people continually relapse into idolatry, In both Old and New Testaments, they continually relapse into idolatry, whether it's in their worship of Baal on Mount Carmel or the golden calf uh, in, in Exodus at the bottom of Mount Sinai or the Galatians' preference for the false teachers over Paul. And don't bother getting started on those Corinthians because they are the worst of the lot. It's the same for us today. Fringe political organizations on the left and on the right, if you're a lever or if you're a remainer or a climate activist or a flat earther or a philanthropist or a part of an online hate group, these things all give their adherents some sense of meaning and purpose that they don't find in the church. Scripture, the Bible, does not deny that the worship of idols has its benefits. It just insists that it's false. It's a lie. Who are the gods in your pocket? 
Because you can pocket any number of gods that will promise you joy, that will promise you peace and calm and hope and well-being. They may make you feel forgiven. They may numb your pain. They may make you feel enlightened or inspired. They may make you feel like you're worth it or that you're enough. If the church was the only place where people could find a sense of meaning and purpose and forgiveness, each one of these buildings would be bursting at the seams every Sunday. Don't get me wrong. The gospel can and does also offer all of these things. And it offers them in true and pure and beautiful abundance. But that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about benefits. God is not just our friend with benefits. I know that actually carries a slightly different meaning, so I forget that I said that. The gospel is not even primarily about forgiveness. The gospel is first and foremost, the good news about Jesus Christ is about loving communion with the creator through Jesus. That has been the plan since day one, since creation. It was all about loving communion with the creator through Jesus. Note in that that Jesus is not plan B when things go wrong. That would make God pretty inept. Jesus is plan A, all along. I asked the question earlier, why does God bother with a bunch of tricksters, squabbling idolaters, deceivers? Why does God bother with us? It's not as if we've morally progressed leaps and bounds since Jacob and his dysfunctional family stalked the dusty environs of ancient Mesopotamia. If anything... Recent history and our present-day war-torn reality has shown that human beings are just as corruptible, if not more, than ever. The only answer we have to the question, why does God bother with us, is very simple. It's love. Why does God bother with us? Because he loves us. God loves you. And the only reason we can say that with any degree of confidence is nothing about any qualities that you possess or anything about you. God loves you, and we know that because he has told us in the person of his son, Jesus. God loves you enough to die for you. God's plan A is that while we were still bound to sin, While we squabbled and started wars and used and abused our power and our money and all those kind of things and worshipped other gods, while we were in that state, Jesus died for you. Who are the gods in your pocket? Because false gods, the ones that lie, all promise some benefit. But the true God promises all of himself, all of himself, no more, no less, all of himself without reservation, without condition. That's just how much he loves you. That's how much he desires you. Notice the trajectory of the gospel is not us to God, it's God to us. He desires us. He moves towards us. He dies for us, not us for him. The gospel is about God's desire to be with us, to commune with us, 
It's about God's desire to have us, despite our squabbling and despite our deceptions, despite our idolatry and our unrepentant and hardened hearts. That is grace. Grace is the gift of God to sinners who do not deserve it. Grace happens when our preferences for power, for status, and wealth are undermined by the creator God who becomes a vulnerable baby. Grace happens when God decides that he will empty himself out for us, for sinners, upon that cursed tree. Grace happens when God drags us out of the tomb with him. Grace happens when God decided that he intends to steal us away from the tent of sin and death. For you, each of you, are the goods in God's pocket, the ones that he has taken for himself. And in that knowledge, turn out your pockets. I don't mean give away all your money. Well, you can do. Jesus said that, not me. Turn out your pockets. Reorientate your will, your desire, your stuff, all of your idols, your money, power, your whole life. Reorientate it towards Jesus because in him you have everything. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the HTH Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode why not share it with someone you think would appreciate it and be sure to subscribe to our channel to get notified when new episodes are published thanks again for listening and we hope you have a great day